Welcome listeners. I'm Suzanne Feeney, a pharmacist at CE Impact. We are thrilled to partner with Dr. Wall each week to produce this podcast. We hope you'll continue to listen in every Tuesday. Episodes always drop by 5 a.m. And pharmacists, you can earn up to 26 hours of CE a year just by listening in every Tuesday. Today's podcast episode is supported by an educational grant from Zelia Pharmaceuticals, a specialty pharmaceutical company focused on providing important anti-infective treatments against serious and often life-threatening infections. Game Changers creates awareness of trends, laws, pharmacotherapy, and medical practice changes that can significantly impact pharmacy. Let's listen in to today's episode. Hello and welcome to another edition of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Well, for a second there, I almost forgot where, where I work. <laughs> it's been, but it's been that kind of week, as, as, as many of you, I'm sure, are dealing with, with uh, COVID surges wherever you might be, whether inpatient or outpatient, uh, I can tell you that here in Iowa, we are in the middle of, of a pretty bad, bad surge. And uh, maybe that's timely because we're going to do uh, some of our uh, semi-regular COVID updates. Uh, we try not to make this show all COVID all the time, but but uh, 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 for a couple of reasons. One, it's just depressing. And two, because uh, uh, the, the, t- the uh, information is just changing so quickly. There's but, a couple of important studies that have come out that I think are, are worth discussing. So that's what we're going to talk about today, um, as well as... Uh, the new uh, monoclonal antibody, BAM-Lambinab, which I'm going to have to practice saying a few times, um, uh, which is, as many of you know, just gotten an EUA from uh, the FDA for uh, treatment of COVID. So we're going to talk about all that stuff. Before we do so, uh, do, though, thank us again to everybody who's listening. We really appreciate it. If you do like our content, please head over to where you uh, get your podcasts and, and hit the like button, uh, spread the word. And, and most importantly, please visit our sponsor, CE Impact, uh, so we can kind of keep doing this and so that uh, you get good information. And remember that they have multiple good uh, uh, CE uh, uh, packages for you there, including this. If you sign up and, 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 and uh, 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 for this, uh, you, this can be part of your CE package. And just for listening to me for 20 minutes and answering some simple questions, you get a, a, a some CE for it. So definitely getting rewarded for hearing me drone on for 20 minutes every week. So it's not too bad. So with that, we're going to get right into it. So uh, as I said, BAM Lanvinab uh, has just been uh, uh, gotten the EUA from the FDA uh, for uh, um, the treatment of, of COVID-19. Um, I will tell you that our health system here uh, at Unity Point is scrambling uh, to, to, to figure out some of the issues with this. Um, yeah, but it's something that I think everyone's going to see. Certainly it's gotten uh, and garnered a lot of, of um media attention. And so I think that it, it, you're probably, if, even if you're working community pharmacy and you're like, yeah, I'm never going to see that, you know, I, I still think kind of, kind of knowing what's going on kind of makes sense. Uh, right now, the federal government is going to be the one who allocates the initial shipment of the drug, not the drug company itself. And uh, much like uh, remdesivir was in the early days of the pandemic, uh, they will be kind of, you know, uh, uh, systematically and, and I hope equitably uh, distributing the drug to various states and things along those lines. So I think that's, that's something you're all going to see. Uh, the drug itself um, as far as the EUA is concerned, I think probably the most important thing to keep in mind is this is not for hospitalized patients. And, and, and that's, that's, I think, one of the reasons why we're struggling to get the system up in place to, to give the drug, because this is actually only indicated for, for uh, outpatients. So it is not authorized for use in patients who are hospitalized due to COVID-19 or even uh, patients who require oxygen therapy due to COVID-19 or an increase in their baseline oxygen. So, um, uh, you know, I think 
think this this is going to be a real big shift because this drug is seriously going to be trying to target this very narrow group of patients who are at very high risk of hospitalization or or you know comorbidities or even death from covid but have not reached that point yet and, and i can tell you that that we are are and i suspect most health systems are kind of trying to put together you know then who is who's who is going to be the target for these patients and um um who you know how do we identify those patients so the eua does help some of that they they do say that 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 uh, this again defined for outpatients with high risk criteria they define that high-risk criteria as a BMI of greater than 35 or chronic kidney disease or diabetes or an immunosuppressive disease um, um, or receiving immunosuppressive therapy or is over age 65. So if you have any one of those conditions you would theoretically be, uh, meet the the uh, the criteria for receiving the drug. You can also be over age 55 and have cardiovascular disease or hypertension or some other chronic respiratory disease and be a candidate for it. And they actually do have uh, a indication, an, an emergency indication for patients age 12 to 17 who are at the at their 85th percent BMI percentile for their age and gender, uh, or they have sickle cell disease or some sort of congenital either acquired heart disease or neurodevelopmental disorders, things along those lines. Or, again, patients who have asthma or, or chronic respiratory disease that requires daily medication for control. So, you know, based just on what I've just said, you may say to yourself, well, gee, that's, that's a lot of patients. And, and you're right. And that's, and that's going to be the trick, though. Many, many of these patients are going to have mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. And so how do we how do we really target, you know, do we do we literally try and give a very limited supply of this drug to everybody who, for example, in your area who has a BMI of over 35? Is that is that enough? You know, um, and so and so I think many health systems are kind of struggling to to to, to figure out, okay, we're gonna have a very limited supply of this drug, especially at the first. Um, we're not just going to give it to every, you know, every patient who who tests positive for COVID, even if they necessarily meet some of these criteria and they might theoretically be be uh, uh, candidates for it. We don't have the numbers to be able to do that. So how are we going to target those patients? There are a couple of, of uh, scoring systems. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic actually has a scoring system. We can actually put that in our show notes uh, that that they've validated uh, in outpatients uh, looking at risk for hospitalization. And they even have a calculator on their website that you can just go in and punch in the numbers and it'll give you an idea of, of risk for hospitalization. Uh, I think that might be one way to go. Um, I'm sure other places are going to kind of look at their own, probably maybe in-system data and things along those lines to help. The other issue with with uh, BAM Lamb and AB is going to be, you know, again, it's 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 administration because it is administrator administrated as a single intravenous infusion. So again, this is not something that you can pick up at your local farm, you know, local outpatient pharmacy because it's going to have to be administered, you know, by by IV infusion. And so then that you know many health systems are going to be struggling with, well, then where are we going to administer it? Because as you might imagine, uh, even though many systems health systems have infusion centers, they're probably not going to be jumping up and down to admit COVID patients who are going to be in a chair next to some person who's getting chemotherapy or something along those lines. So we're obviously going to have to have a separate area for where these where these people receive this medication. Um, I read some some pretty weird stuff on the internet about how maybe we could do you know drive through administration, and I'm like, well, even if that was a possibility, and my mind kind of spins with the with the with the issues associated with that, that's probably not going to work because unfortunately uh, there are some adverse effects have been reported with this, and, and one of them actually is anaphylaxis. So uh, again, I don't think this is something that you're going to be able to do, you know, in the parking lot of a, of a hospital or something along those lines, because because of, of, of the risk that's associated there. Um, um, and, and so again, there, there is a, a warning for potential serious hypersensitivity reaction. And obviously, you would discontinue the therapy, you know, immediately after, after if that were to have that. 
we don't obviously have very much other experience with adverse drug reactions. That's just the one that, that really uh, uh, jumps out in, in the EUA announcement that we're going to have to really kind of keep an eye out for. Interestingly, it seems that 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 uh, these drugs, that this drug in particular may actually be associated with worse outcomes once patients are ventilated or requiring mechanical ventilation. And so, again, that, you know, it points to the fact that if, that if this drug helps, it seems to help in a very, very, uh, very, very tiny time window. And again, you know, the, the big question is, is going to be, um, you know, how do we target these patients? So, again, that's hot off the press. We're struggling with, with what we're going to do when and if we get this medication. And I suspect many other health systems are doing that as well. So that's the first part of kind of our update of, of kind of what's going on. The second part of our update we're going to talk about is intravenous immune globulin for uh, uh, IVIG. Um, you know, now, IV, you know, many of us uh, use IVIG. Uh, uh, my apologies, intravenous immune globulin for COVID. Uh, many of us use IVIG, of course, for lots of things. Um, and it's and even though it's it's used off label for a lot of things, such as uh, you know immune mediated thrombocytopenia and Kawasaki disease and things along those lines, it it, it is an accepted therapy for a wide variety of a pretty diverse uh, immunologic and and infectious diseases. Um, so it probably isn't a surprise that somebody somewhere would say, hey, why don't we give IVIG a shot in in COVID nineteen patients. Um, there had been some retrospective studies that said, hey, maybe there's a benefit. We're really not sure, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, a couple of months ago, a, a, a open-label controlled study of IVIG was um, um, uh, published uh, and it came from the Scripps group in, in San Diego. And so up until recently, that was really kind of the best or highest level of evidence we had on, on, on that. And uh, uh, ba basically, you know, what? What that what that paper kind of showed was that patients and it was in kind of an open label fashion who received it. Uh, they had 34 patients in this study, 16 who got IVIG, 17 who just basically got standard of care. So like so many of the other things we've seen with with COVID, uh, it wasn't a, a placebo controlled study or anything. They basically just you know added IVIG to patients. Obviously, a small group of patients. Uh, what what kind of was the big you know arrow or, or Achilles heel of this study was that all patients who received IVIG uh, also got 40 million grams of methylprednisolone as pretreatment because um, of the of the risk of headache. And many of you, I, you know, I, mean, I suspect we have some some infusion pharmacists or pharmacists who work with IVIG. Uh, I'm sure many of you know that that's probably one of the most notorious side effects of, of receiving IVIG is the headache that a lot of people get when they get it. And, uh, you know, I've been I've gotten calls from my docs over the years about, you know, what can I do? And patients hate, hate it and they have the headache all day and, and stuff like that. Um, and one of the treatments, you know, is to prophylax basically with 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 methylprednisolone. Well, uh, when the study was done, which was in May 2020, uh, we still were just starting to use steroids regularly for, for COVID-19. We now, of course, know that steroids are beneficial in patients who, are, who have an oxygen requirement for COVID-19 and having COVID-19. So that was really kind of the Achilles heel of the study was that they did find a benefit. Uh, they did find essentially an improvement in respiratory status in most of these patients. Uh, and mo uh, these patients basically uh, did not uh, uh, progress to needing mechanical ventilation, uh, and they also had improved oxygenation, but then the $64 question was, well, is that the steroids they got, or was it the actual you know, IVIG? So that garnered a little bit of, of interest, but not a lot of people were jumping up and down about it. Well, 
just uh, uh, in about the last two weeks, uh, actually published in the peer-reviewed literature. So this isn't a preprint. This is actually published in BM, BMC Infectious Diseases. So that means it's open access. And I'm pretty sure we can put a link to this as well in the show notes. Uh, there was a, an actual randomized placebo-controlled double-blind study done with IVIG treatment for severe coronavirus 2019. So uh, uh, that, that was just recently published again in the peer-reviewed literature. This study was done in Iran. Um, and, uh, you know, so that you might say, well, gee, is that as a rigor? Well, I mean, again, it was it, it, it was a placebo-controlled study. It did go through the, the peer review process, so I don't have any reason to believe that it wouldn't be any less rigorous than in, you know, a, a, a study from any other country. In this study, what happened, again, it was a randomized uh, double-blind placebo-controlled study. They had 59 patients with severe COVID-19 who did not respond to initial treatments. These the patients were then randomized to receive IVIG uh, for three days while the placebo group received uh, just a placebo. So they actually was a placebo-controlled group, which was nice. The dose is something that's going to be some uh, of, of some concern. Uh, hospital pharmacists and, and infusion pharmacists, you know, I, I think are pretty well aware of the fact that IVIG is always kind of in short supply. We're always struggling to 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 uh, to, to get it, and you know, uh, it's it seems like there are times when we're we're really short and we hardly have any. There are times when we see where we're kind of flush and have plenty. Uh, again, and 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 so that's something you do want to keep into consideration is that you certainly don't want to deplete the entire supply of IVIG in a hospital and then have someone come in who has a known indication for it. Someone who has you know pr- you know primary hypogammaglobulinemia with a with an infection, or someone who has ITP, or someone who has uh, Kawasaki's disease, we know those drugs, uh, IVIG is beneficial in that group. So you really, really wouldn't want to be out of it because you've used all of it for, for COVID patients. So that's something to keep in mind uh, uh, when, when if you're contemplating doing this. The good news is they used a relatively low dose. So the treatment was was, was basically uh, um, of 20 grams of IVIG daily for three days. Uh, it was not a weight-based dose. So that's a little bit unusual for most other indications. IVIG is usually a weight-based dose and it can be anywhere from, you know, know, 200 milligrams per kilogram all the way to 600 milligrams per kilogram. But what that usually means is that you're, you're getting, you know, multiple grams a day of the stuff. Usually 40 to 60 grams a day is not unusual, you know, in, in, in pay, when we give it for things like ITP and stuff like that. So it was a relatively low dose. Um, the, and so uh, the outcomes of the study, they, they looked at, at a couple of things, um, but, but uh, trying to kind of, kind of cut to the chase, uh, they did find that the duration of the hospitalization was longer in the treatment group compared to, uh, or and uh, uh, was longer in the control group compared to the treatment group. Uh, but this is the, the kicker was that the in-hospital mortality was actually significantly lower in the treatment group. 20% of patients in the in, in the in, uh, treatment group uh, died compared to 48.3%. Now again, these are those percentages. The numbers were relatively low because a relatively small study, but it was statistically significant. They did do a multivariate regression analysis uh, to to kind of confirm what they had found. And again, they found when they when they controlled for, for other factors, that the administration of IVIG still had a statistically significant impact on in-hospital mortality uh, with, an, with a fairly low, low odds ratio. So um, basically, you know, what, what they basically found was, was that this, this, uh, the administration of IVIG in, in severe uh, COVID patients did seem to help patients. It did seem to, you know, decrease length of time in the hospital, and it did seem to improve uh, uh, mortality. Now, there are some questions with this study, uh, primarily... Uh, 
uh, you know, they don't really go into much detail in the trial about exactly, you know, who got it. They basically just said, you know, patients who are on oxygen, who got, who got, who had severe uh, COVID. Well, you know, I mean, that could be anything and, and, you know, or, you know, what level of oxygen support did they need? They really didn't go any, in any, any detail on that. They did say a lot of their patients were in the ICU, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were intubated or on ECMO or, or, or some other very, you know, heroic ways of supporting uh, oxygenation. So, you know, that's, that's, uh, if there's a big strike to the study, it's, it's, it's kind of scratching, trying to piece together exactly when they decided to pull the trigger on IVIG in, in these patients as well as, 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 as not, because again, we, we don't have the endless supply of IVIG just to give it to everybody. Um, and, and so that's, that's, that's something that, that we do need to keep in mind. So basically what I take away is that, you know, no, I'm not ready to recommend IVIG across the board, but we do now have a, have at least, you know, two, you know, randomized control trials that seem to show a benefit. Um, there are, as you might imagine, several ongoing randomized control trials that also show, uh, also are hoping to show a benefit that are, are continuing. Um, you know, I am not going to rule out using this uh, in, in my very sick COVID patients, um, but but I think I think trying to find out exactly when and where to use it is, is what we're going to have to try and figure out. Um, Usually, IBIG is, is fairly safe. Not a lot of weirdo side effects or anything associated with it, ex with the exception of the headache that we talked about before. Uh, most people tolerate it pretty well. It is it is pretty pricey, unfortunately, um, um, so that might be an issue as well. But uh, it, it might well be a, another arrow in the in the quiver of, of clinicians who are dealing with particularly super sick inpatients with, with with COVID. So again, I'm not blanket endorsing it or anything. I'm just kind of just the facts you know, ma'am sort of thing. I'm just trying to give you, you know, the study. And again, this is a study that you can read for yourself because uh, it was published in BMC Infectious Diseases, which means it's, a, it's an open label or open online study that anyone can have access to. And then finally, uh, the last thing, and I'm sure people are going to think I'm out of my out of my ever living mind, um, but uh, we uh, 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 I read came across this paper uh, just in, in the last little while, and uh, it, it, and I've already received quite a bit of ribbing from my colleagues here here in in, in Des Moines about it. There's a paper, and it, it's a preprint paper that was uh, published in it's only in, in the preprint servers, but it's looking at the efficacy of honey. Yes, the kind of Winnie the Pooh type honey. And a, 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 a herbal compound called Nigella sativa, which actually is uh, available actually pretty commonly because it's used for uh, uh, cooking as well as for uh, uh, as an herbal extract. It's basically from the fennel seed, and and it's and it's available you know, exclusively in a lot of areas as black seed oil um, or or uh, or cumin seed oil. So you, you can actually find it uh, in a in a wide variety of areas as as both, and you can get you receive it as liquid, you can see it as capsules, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's Nigella sativa extract that you're that that if you were to want to do this, that you would be, be, be looking at now. So the paper itself uh, was uh, the efficacy of, again, honey and this abstract against COVID-19. Uh, it was an, a study done in, in, in Pakistan, mostly uh, uh, some in, in India as well. And again, you may say, well, you know, gee, maybe that doesn't have the highest level of, 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 uh, of rigor that we want. It actually was overseen by Harvard Medical School, and they have several authors from Harvard Medical School, as well as being registered with the NIH. So, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that, you know, 
I, I, there's no reason for me to believe that 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 the rigor of the study isn't isn't as good as other studies is you know that that you may be reading on this sort of stuff. So anyway, so what they did in this uh, in this study is they took a look at 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 again uh, patients who had COVID. They note that that both honey has long known to have antiviral and antimicrobial properties. They also have pointed out that 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 bot botanological studies have basically shown that that this Nagila sativa stuff also has antiviral and antimicrobial as well as anti-inflammatory properties so you know the, you know there's there's biologic plausibility that would that would suggest that it might might work there's been some molecular docking studies that suggest that that in particular uh, uh, honey might inhibit uh, SARS-2 covid uh, replication so i mean again there, there's some biologic plausibility that might have a role but that's all kind of dust in the wind until we can figure out if this stuff actually works so um what in, in this was a multi-center study again mostly throughout pakistan uh, and they basically took patients who were positive uh for covid uh who uh, were were uh, adult uh, uh males and non-pregnant females who presented to, to medical care within 96 hours of the onset of symptoms most of these patients had you know kind of moderate type symptoms they so they did not they excluded patients who had mild or uh, clinical symptoms or no symptoms uh, as well um, and they and if patients were super duper sick, so multi-organ dysfunction or ventilator support, uh, they were they were also excluded from the study. So they were really looking at kind of moderate-ish or mild to moderate sort of of, of levels of COVID. And then uh, in, um, uh, in the study, the patients were received they either received uh, uh, placebo or they received honey at uh, one gram. Um, plus this, uh, they actually received the seeds of Nigella sativa at 80 milligrams per kilogram body weight divided in two to three daily doses for up to 13 days while the placebo group, group received basically empty capsules. Okay. Um, and then of course they received the, the standard of care based on whatever the treating physician uh, uh, wanted to do. The primary outcomes was viral clearance. So patients who had a negative PCR uh, alleviation of clinical symptoms and uh, of just basically, you know, uh, other improvements in, in symptoms. Secondary outcomes included reduction of fever, uh, CRP levels, and severity of symptoms as well. The statistics seemed reasonable to me. They, they did do a regression analysis that, to look for, for things like diabetes, hypertension, baseline oxygen use, and things along those lines. Uh, uh, they actually uh, enrolled 313 patients from, from a screening of 1,043. So again, you know, not terrible, I think, as those things go. And then they did a two-to-one uh, randomization. So they had 210 patients received the treatment, 103 patients who just got basically standard of care. And what they basically found was that uh, there were several benefits. They found that alleviation of COVID-19 symptoms for patients in the HNS group uh, actually occurred four day, at four days compared to seven days for moderate and six days versus 13 days for severe patients. So that's pretty good. Viral clearance, which again was being negative, um, was occurred four days sooner in the in the treatment arm. And they did Kaplan-Meier curves and found that, that, that this was kind of confirmed in the Kaplan-Meier analysis. Um, in moderate patients, uh, uh, the HNS group uh, compared to the control group uh, were able to have, a, they had an improved quality of life and are able to re resume activities they living much, much sooner. And in the severe groups, the level of, of supplemental oxygen was much lower as well. In secondary outcomes, they actually found a, a significant outcome in, in, in basically all of the, in the annual things we talked about. A degree of fever was, was actually uh, better in the, in the uh, uh, treatment arm compared to the control arm. Um, and that was shown as early as day four. And then basically when they looked at individual symptoms, uh, all pretty much all individual symptoms improved as you would expect uh, throughout, the, throughout the course of the, of the, of the trial. 
So they did do the ordinal scale where they looked at, and this is the WHO ordinal scale that goes from one to seven, where one is, is no symptoms and seven is, is basically uh, asymptomatic or seven or seven is death. And so, you know, they did find that, that, that uh, better improvement on this ordinal scale did occur again in the HNS group compared to, 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 uh, to placebo. So, you know, again, I'm not, you know, I've already received kind of, as I said, kind of a lot of ribbing from, from colleagues of mine that I'm recommending honey for everybody. I'm not blanketly recommending this by any stretch of the imagination, but it is, you know, we, we, we demand in, in evidence-based medicine, high level randomized control trials. And there's nothing to my eye that makes this seem like this wouldn't be a decent, you know, randomized placebo controlled study. And so, uh, you know, I, I, there's no reason for me to, to, to doubt the word of, 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 of these investigators, unless they're just completely not telling the truth. And again, I, I don't see any reason why they would, would do that. So, you know, considering that the, the side effects are minimal, the costs are very low, you know, I, in particular, if you have outpatients who are like really clamoring for something to use, I would encourage you to, to take a look at the paper yourself. And if you think that the paper feel, you know, that you feel that the paper is solid and it does have solid benefits, I don't really see the harm in, in recommending this to, to patients. Because again, unless you're a baby, there's no real harm in honey. And so far as I'm able to tell the, the, this Nagella sativa stuff, which is used in cooking, it seems unless you're allergic to it, which is pretty rare, seems to be pretty safe. So again, you know, it, you know, it's not the be all end all. It was, it was uh, an open label study. It, it didn't have a gigantic number of patients. Um, um, uh, you know, the, the effects, you know, did vary as you might imagine, super, super duper sick patients weren't on the study either. So, I mean, again, I, you know, there's, there's going to be some issues, you know, that this would need to be confirmed in another study, but as we're, we're you know, radically running around trying to find, uh, uh, treatments for this, uh, one could argue this is a pretty cheap and pretty safe, uh, treatment, especially in your mild to moderate outpatients that might be considered to be used. So, so that's kind of the update on COVID. We will wrap things up after a word from our sponsor, CE Impact. Game Changers discusses clinical guidelines and pharmacotherapy trends that significantly impact practice. Game Changers is produced and accredited by CE Impact and hosted by Dr. Jeff Wall. New episodes are released each week and available for pharmacy continuing education credit to CE Impact subscribers. CE Impact subscription service brings you the CE you need on the topics that matter the most. Check out the link to sign up in the show notes. Use code PODCAST for a Pharmacy Podcast Network discount. So uh, by the time you hear this, who knows, we might have other things that have already come out with COVID. Again, that's that's the, the world we live in today. Um, you know, uh, at some point, we'll probably do a, a review of vaccine information. Um, and and um, as many of you know, there's some pretty exciting information as far as vaccines coming out. So hopefully that will be a real, real step forward as we go along here. But in the interim, you know, we do have these three uh, treatments that have been looked at, the, the quality of data on all of them isn't terrific, but it does give us some more arrows in the quiver to consider treating for these patients. So that wraps it up for this week of, of uh, Game Changers. Again, please do uh, go to uh, where you like your your uh, web or your podcast. Please uh, like us. Please spread the word and head over to CE Impact and, and uh, get your CE as well. Uh, that's it for this time. I'll see you guys next week. But remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll catch you next week.